This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined today by Avital Livni of the University of Illinois. She'll be talking about her new book, Trust in the Islamic Advantage, Religious-Based Movements in Turkey and the Muslim World. That was just published by Cambridge University Press. We'll also talk to Alaa Al-Rababa, who, along with a team of scholars from Stanford University, recently published the article, Attitudes Towards Migrants in a Highly Impacted Economy. Finally, we'll talk to Jonah scholhofer Wall of Leiden University. He'll be talking about his new article, On-Side Fighting in Civil War, The Logic of Mortal Alignment in Syria. Welcome to our program. This is the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Ala Al-Rababa, a graduate student at Stanford University and a, and a fellow at the Immigration Policy Lab. Um, he's the author, along with Andrea Dillon, Scott Williamson, Jens Heinmuller, Dominic Hengartner, and Jeremy Weinstein, of a new article in Comparative Political Studies, uh, Attitudes Towards Migrants in a Highly Impacted Economy, Evidence from the Syrian Refugee Crisis in Jordan. Ala, thanks for joining us from Jordan. Thank you for so, having me. So, so tell us about the article. What, uh, what is the major contribution which uh, you and your team uh, were making in this article? Yeah, um, so essentially this project uh, started because uh, there have been a lot of studies in the last few years about attitudes toward refugees and migrants, uh, but the majority of these studies have been in Western countries, in North America and in, in Europe. And uh, we, we thought that this uh, causes a sample bias in terms of the studies. And this is especially the case because if you think about uh, refugees specifically, uh, developing countries host the majority of refugees. Uh, around 85% of refugees uh, live in developing countries. So we decided to start this article uh, in Jordan, a country that has, um, has a lot of uh, Syrian refugees and also Palestinian refugees. And uh, in terms of Syrian refugees, it has, uh, I think, the second highest number per capita uh, of Syrian refugees in the world uh, after, after Lebanon. Uh, so what we decided to uh, study attitudes towards Syrian refugees here. And we came in with uh, similar hypotheses to those that have been tested in Western countries. So we wanted to see if, uh, for example, uh, economic concerns uh, determine attitudes toward refugees uh, or whether humanitarian concerns, cultural concerns, and so on. And what we found here is that economic concerns, uh, it was actually quite surprising given the context, but we found that economic concerns do not determine attitudes toward refugees in Jordan. And this is both if you look at egocentric concerns, so if people are afraid of competition with Syrians in the job market and so on, uh, people who are more subject to competition uh, with Syrians did not uh, seem to be more anti-Syrian uh, refugees in Jordan. And if this is also the case when you think about sociotropic economic concerns. So uh, if, if uh, you think like are, are Syrians going to benefit Jordan uh, in terms of like high-skilled labor or something like this, uh, this also doesn't determine attitudes. What determines attitudes in Jordan uh, are uh, in large uh, humanitarian and then cultural concerns. So uh, humanitarian concerns, people were, uh, seem to be more supportive of hosting refugees who, who are particularly vulnerable, for example. And then cultural concerns, which is uh, Jordanians wanted uh, Syrian refugees who were more similar to them, uh, specifically when it came to, to uh, religious identity. So tell us about the methodology then. Uh, you put a survey in the field. Um, describe uh, who you talked to and what you asked. Yeah, so we conducted a survey of uh, 1,500 Jordanians. It's a representative sample of Jordanians. It was conducted on, on all 12 governorates in Jordan. And we, we asked uh, respondents a series of questions related to uh, like, of course, some questions were related to their demographics, but we also asked them a series of questions related to um, the impact of Syrian refugees. So like what they viewed the impact of Syrian refugees to be on housing, for example, or on the economy uh, or on terrorism. We also asked them their, at, uh, their attitudes towards certain, certain policies toward refugees. So do you think uh, they should be given or denied work permits? Do you think the border should be closed with Syria? 
and we also asked some some questions about their general attitudes towards Syrian refugees, such as a feeling thermometer or uh, what you know. Uh, do you think Jordanians should host and assist Syrian refugees? In addition to this, we conducted a conjoint experiment where uh, we presented respondents with um, with profiles, hypothetical profiles of Syrian refugees, and we manipulated certain aspects of these profiles. So the gender, age, occupation of refugees, uh, their level of education, uh, their sectarian identity, the reason they fled from Syria, or and their family status, whether uh, they had kids or not, for example, uh, whether they were with it or not. And uh, we, we asked them after these conjoints if they supported, um, you know, hosting these refugees in Jordan or if they should not, not stay in Jordan and uh, go, go to Syria, basically. So then you, so when you look at the two survey, or not the two surveys, but the survey plus the experiment, um, the, the results do seem fairly surprising that uh, economic competition and, uh, and, and the impact or, or contact don't seem to be driving the results. So why, do you, why do you think that is? So that's an excellent question. And I, I want to emphasize how surprising that is. So when it comes to economic concerns, uh, earlier studies in the West emphasized the, the, the importance of egocentric concerns, right? That like people, migrants who may compete with you are less welcome. Uh, more recent studies in the West focused on sociotropic concerns. We want people who help the country, who are not a burden on the country in a sense. Uh, we expected those, if anything, to be more pronounced in Jordan, right? Because uh, Jordan is not developed like the West, and uh, you know, just the 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 number of refugees here has been so high, the impact has been so large. So we expected those to be uh, much more important. Uh, we also actually expected the the cultural concern to be much less important in Jordan, just because of the you know the similarity between Jordanians and Syrians. Both speak Arabic. You know, after some time. In Jordan, like you can't even distinguish from uh, the accent whether somebody is Syrian or not. Uh, like they have a similar religious identity, so we didn't expect culture to to have a huge effect, and that's why the results were so surprising because culture seemed to be to have a huge effect and economics did not. Uh, in terms of the reason that is, so we can only you know we we don't have uh, this is only one study. We we're hoping. Uh, that more studies will be conducted in, in developing countries to to answer uh, some of these questions and to you know even see the extent to which other countries behave similarly or not. Uh, but when it comes to cultural concerns, for example, uh, you know we know that sectarianism is um, a very prominent theme across the region. So uh, we conducted some focus groups after the survey with, right. with uh, some some, Jorda some Jordanians and we presented them with similar questions and then we had discussions with them and uh, people you know seem to especially like when, when it came to fake profiles of Alawite refugees like people seem to be extremely opposed to Alawites uh, you know they they were saying things like they may influence our kids beliefs uh, when they're mixed with them or their thoughts may spread they really did not want Alawites uh, they were more tolerant toward Christians, uh, you know, because they said, you know, there are Christians in Jordan, we live together peacefully and so on, or, you know, even called them Christians are people of the book, uh, but Alawites are Shia, so this is just very different. Um, but yeah, um, so th this this seems to be like uh, just the fact that they're, they know Christians uh, a lot and Christians normally live in Jordan, like seem to have helped a bit. Uh, but I also want to highlight that in terms of refugees coming to Jordan. So like, you know, these questions were somewhat hypothetical because the vast majority of Syrian refugees in Jordan are Sunni. So this is, you know, in terms of external validity here, you, you can doubt it a bit. Uh, in terms of humanitarian concerns, like this is something that uh, constantly came up in, in uh, the focus groups. Uh, like people kept saying, you know, we need to help, uh, for example, females or uh, people with children because uh, they're, they're put, they're very exposed to violence because of our humanity uh, because so like in Jordan you know there's a term uh, uh, like nashama and so on like our magnanimity like forces us to do this and you know the, and then also like people emphasize because you know they're our Arab or Muslim brothers so uh, those two seem to somewhat interact as well. Now, you said that you fielded the survey uh, in all 12 governorates. Did you see any uh, significant differences between uh, the northern and the south where there are fewer refugees? Um, so that, that's a good question. So it seemed, um, we, it, 
so it, it seemed that in, in areas where um, people were more exposed to, to uh, refugees, that, that like areas where they had more contact, uh, it seemed that attitudes were slightly po more positive, right? Mm -hmm. So this is, uh, yeah. So, so th 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 this, this was, um, we, we don't have like causal evidence on this, but uh, there was like a correlation where areas that had uh, more, in more interaction or uh, people, especially people who reported uh, having more contact with refugees seem to have more positive attitudes and the policy outcome also seemed to be more positive. So now that this has been published, uh, you know, where do you think that it should lead uh, the field of immigration studies and the study of attitudes towards refugees? You know, where should it go next? Um, yeah, so I, I, think, I think this is, as mentioned, the majority of studies are conducted in the West. So we're hoping, and in developed countries in the West, North America and Europe. So I'm, I'm just hoping to see more, more uh, evidence from uh, developing countries just to see if, if the, these findings hold or not. Um, for, so, for example, I think there's a working paper by Alicia Holland, Maggie Peters, and Yang Yang Zhu. Uh, it's based in Colombia and it looks at uh, Venezuelans, but uh, there they, they find that uh, uh, political polarization um, is, you know, where it's very high, uh, there could be ideological misperceptions. So, uh, they, they view incoming Venezuelans as um, uh, like they, they think that they have left-wing views and they, they oppose them as a result. Uh, but I, I think the, the first thing would be to conduct way more studies in developing countries to see the extent to which these results hold and whether uh, some of the consensuses that we've developed in the West, uh, do they actually stand to scrutiny when you apply them to, to uh, uh, non-Western countries. So I think that would be the first step. And then in terms of, you know, as mentioned, the majority of refugees live in developing countries, often uh, in countries that neighbor conflicting countries. So when you want to, uh, there are plenty of studies now in political science on how to improve attitudes toward migrants and refugees. And it seems in this context, this is where it's particularly important to improve attitudes and uh, to re reduce potential clashes. So uh, also in terms of studies that look at, you know, experiments to improve attitudes and so on, that would be uh, a great place to focus on. Well, thank you. We've been speaking with uh, Ala Alrababa on behalf of his team uh, from the Immigration Policy Lab at uh, Stanford University about his new article, Attitudes Towards Migrants in a Highly Impacted Economy, in the uh, January 2021 issue of Comparative Political Studies. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. This is the Maps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Jonah Schulhofer-Wohl of Leiden University in the Netherlands. He's the author of the new article, Onside Fighting in Civil War, The Logic of Mortal Alignment in Syria, which was published um, in the late fall by Rationality and Society. Um, Jonah, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. So tell us about this article and, and the Syrian civil war. This article is motivated by an observation that extends across civil wars, not just in Syria. You see uh, a problem of cooperation on, uh, between groups that would normally be aligned on the same side of the war. They have a lot of incentives to cooperate. They share a common enemy, but nevertheless, uh, at many points in time, they seem unable to work with each other and even engage in direct fighting with each other. And I wanted to explore why might this happen? Um, what I set out to do in this article first was to identify this kind of fighting as a specific area of behavior, because it turns out that in the literature on civil wars, there's a lot of attention to uh, whether groups switch sides in a war, whether groups fracture and fragment, uh, whether some rebel groups fight each other, but there wasn't a specific concept of when groups that are aligned fight each other but stay aligned with each other. Uh, and so these groups are maintaining a common enemy but fighting. And so tell us about then what do you what do you see as the major explanations that were out there in the field? So I tried to uh, abstract from some of these related literatures possible causes of it and you run into a range of them. Some are structural. So for example, 
uh, in wars with many different groups fighting, perhaps this happens. Uh, if natural resources are involved, maybe that's an additional incentive. Um, another explanation of it uh, could be ideological incompatibilities or uh, social cleavages where some groups are representing uh, different constituencies in society, ethnic groups or classes or so on. And uh, you'll, you'd even hear as an explanation kind of more personal uh, leadership accounts that, you know, there's just a, an inability for these groups to get along with each other because of interpersonal differences between the higher ups. And, but you don't think those are sufficient? So I, th I think those are all reasonable explanations of it, but it occurred to me that there's a, a sort of alternative that could be embedded in the structure of the war. And that is that um, these groups uh, should cooperate with each other in order to win, but understandably, they're actually competitors with each other politically at the same time. And this is uh, something that comes up uh, also in work on um, self-determination movements. Uh, Kathleen Gallagher Cunningham and co-authors have talked about this uh, and others, and they call this a dual contest framework. Uh, but the idea is just there's political competition between groups that uh, share a goal. But what I thought about was that this kind of political competition should actually vary in how salient it is at different times in the war, depending on how much they're threatened by their enemy. Right. So when this threat from the enemy is really severe and intense, and uh, armed groups can imagine that their very survival is at stake, uh, then they have to set aside this political competition just in order to get to the next day, the next week, the next month to fight another day, and then maybe political competition matters later. Um, but that's something that we can see should actually vary during a war. It's not the case that at all times and places uh, the enemy threatens the survival of armed groups. And so I, I set out to measure that. And so the Syrian civil war was an ideal um, sort of case to study for this uh, for, for several reasons. First, because um, this behavior was very destructive in the war itself. So nearly from the beginning, there were questions about uh, on the opposition side of the war, why couldn't groups cooperate better? Why were they fighting each other? That had implications for whether foreign countries would support them or not. And so it was very relevant for this war. In addition, um, with uh, the war uh, ongoing at the time I was writing this, there was just a huge amount of information being produced about it, including uh, very detailed accounts of uh, fatalities during the war. And so what I tried to do was to measure in a kind of systematic way um, how great was the threat from the enemy and using the fatalities and in particular, how were people killed uh, to try to map out what was happening with fighting during the war. So I distinguished. No, go ahead, go ahead. I distinguished between um, direct fighting and indirect fighting. And so anything uh, was indirect if it involved shelling or aerial bombardment uh, but basically not face-to-face -face killing. And this allowed me uh, to track uh, when was the government or when was the opposition side going on an offensive against its opponents? When was it defending territory? And when did it seem to be able to successfully defend territory against the threatened invasion of that territory? So that was kind of the basis for saying, um, does this existential threat exist or not? When the opposition had taken control of areas in the country from the government and then successfully resisted the government's attempt to take back those areas, then I think we could reasonably say that uh, the opposition didn't uh, believe that its very existence was at stake anymore. It kind of had sustainable positions that it could defend. And it was, at that point in time and in those places that I expected we would see this kind of onside fighting occur. 
I, what I what I like uh, among other things is the way that you really get into the microdynamics of the wars, and it's not just a single kind of undifferentiated or year on year type of analysis, but it really is able to dig in to this kind of local and even daily types of um, of interactions. Yeah, I think it's it's very important to um, to as as other authors have put it to unpack the black box of war to really see what's happening. Uh, on a daily basis to see what's happening across different areas. And I think that allows us to um, ultimately find patterns that uh, can generalize, first of all, within this war, but also perhaps to other wars. Um, one of the things that the theory I introduced in this article tries to do is to understand on-site fighting is something that can happen for rebel groups or for uh, groups that are aligned with the government or the security forces. So in the empirics of this article, I'm looking only at instances of on-site fighting among the opposition in Syria, but there are instances, and I refer to uh, a couple of them in the paper, where you also observe this on the government side. And so it's something that's not unique to rebels, but by looking at it in this kind of detail and understanding uh, militarily what's happening in the war, then uh, we have these findings that we could apply under different circumstances in Syria to different actors. Uh, we could apply to other wars. And so I think looking at those microdynamics really gives you a lot of leverage. One of the things which was interesting was the way you coded this around like a single master cleavage, uh, in this case, um, against um, a, the regime of Bashar al-Assad. Um, and uh, but it's interesting when you when you bring an actor like uh, the Islamic State to ISIS into into the mix. And so how did you think about that in terms of what counts as onside fighting? Right. This this was challenging because you want to allow for the possibility that there are multiple cleavages in a war and then have a criteria that you can code them on uh, where you're not just saying after the fact, well, I want it to turn out to be the case that they're all on a certain side. And uh, with respect to uh, the Islamic State, um, what I was looking at was, is their vision of, of a future where they're winning one in which the government of Bashar al-Assad can continue to exist. And it's on that basis that I code them as being on the opposition side of the war. Um, it is true that they're um, interested in combining territory outside of Syria with Syrian territory. And so there's the potential for you to code a territorial-based cleavage. But mm -hmm. what that doesn't have in common with other wars in which you might have separatists or irredentists is that in those wars, uh, those movements actually envision a future in which a rump state consisting of the former government still exists. They're not out to eliminate it completely. And that's something that is not the case with ISIS. And so on that basis, I think we can say that uh, they are on the side of the master cleavage. And the reason this is interesting analytically is that it then lets us ask more questions about this. So if they're on that side of the cleavage, why do they collude with the government at different points in time? Mm -hmm. If they're on that side of the cleavage, why do they fight other opposition groups like Jabhat al-Nusra, like others? Um, and if we were just to look at their behavior of fighting other opposition groups, of colluding with the government, we might miss some of these puzzles if we just concluded, well, maybe they're not on the same uh, side of the cleavage because they're behaving this way. So I try to have a kind of definition of the cleavage that is just with respect to the stated goals of the group. And then you can separate that from behavior and look at what happens with behavior. No, it, it's very, very interesting. And then, so I guess one last question then, and it sort of follows from this, but not exactly, is you do a very nice job of, um, of bringing out like observable implications of the different theories and showing why they don't quite work. But let's just choose one of those and talk about the ideology one. And so, mm -hmm. you, so how is it that, uh, what, what convinced you that your theory of um, kind of the absence of threat at a particular moment um, explains this better than say ideological differences between jihadists and non-jihadists or within the jihadist camp? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think um, one, of, one of the 
ambitions of the article is to be less ambitious in some way because I don't claim that this is the only explanation of it. Uh, what I want to see is if there's evidence consistent with this being one factor that matters. And so I think it's quite possible that ideology also matters, but I think the article convincingly demonstrates that this military dimension and this um, presence or absence of threat is an explanation in itself. So about the uh, ideology, for example, um, one thing I do is, is to try to map out, um, and, and this is in table five of the paper, mm -hmm. to map out what are the expectations of these different uh, theories or explanations, and then what do we actually see? And for the ideology one, I think it, it predicts in uh, many places where you have both uh, Islamists, extreme Islamists, non-Islamists, it predicts likely... Um, on-site fighting between these groups in a rather constant way, right? It doesn't really tell you why would this vary over time? Why would you not observe it at some points, but observe it at others? And um, that doesn't mesh with the pattern of on-site fighting in the war because you see it happen at very specific points in time and you see a complete absence of it up until those points. And then sometimes afterwards, you also see an absence of it. And that's something that the ideological explanation, you know, it doesn't really tell you, well, um, if ideology is such a, a pertinent driver of this conflict, then how can it be that these groups will also be at peace with each other for months on end, including before and after these episodes? Well, great. We've been speaking with Jonah Schulhofer-Wall of Leiden University about his new article, Onside Fighting in Civil War. Jonah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. This is the Maps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and joining us on today's book segment is Avital Livni of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She's the author of the new book, Trust in the Islamic Advantage, Religious-Based Movements in Turkey and the Muslim World, which was just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Avital, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this. So tell us about the book. Yeah, I think the book is aimed at understanding a phenomenon that's grabbed a lot of attention, both from the public and from politicians, which is, uh, you know, why are Islamic groups, social, political, and economic, so successful? Um, and if you zero in a little bit more on the phenomenon of Islamic groups, you'll, you'll notice, or at least I notice, that really similar groups with similar objectives that just don't make any reference to Islam have struggled in the same contexts, you know, the same times, the same, the same countries. Um, so I really wanted to try to understand why Islamic-based groups, these groups that make reference to Islam, seem to have an advantage when it comes to mobilizing the public. Uh, and I really wanted to do this as analytically as possible. So I wanted to be really clear about what the puzzle or the phenomenon is, um, and then test implications of different explanations. Um, so I, I try to do um, a service also to the existing literature, which is pretty deep on this question and do a real review of uh, three kind of groups of existing theories, um, theories that have to do with grievances, theories that are about, about personal faith um, and new, a new crop of theories about information and, and, and kind of test those, um, rigorously test those with qualitative and quantitative data. And overall, I couldn't find enough support for any of those three theories to feel like those are the answers. So I wanted to also develop what I think makes more sense with the Turkish case that I know the best, um, but also that can extend to other parts of the Muslim world. And I guess my main contribution is that theory, what I call the trust-based theory, arguing that Islam in this, in this context is less about people's personal religious beliefs and more functions more as a social identity. And so when political and economic entrepreneurs try to mobilize the public talking about Islam, what they're doing is they're not priming some kind of a devotion or duty to God, but instead a feeling of trust that is shared among people with this Islamic social identity. Um, and specifically trust this feeling that other members of your group, other Muslims uh, can and should be trusted. 
And this is really valuable because we need to trust one another in order to mobilize, uh, whether for political or economic purposes. Um, but also, I think in this specific case, um, this group-based trust is really valuable because generalized trust, so trust in most people, tends to be low in Muslim countries. Um, and so it's, in this case, Islam and references to Islam are solving kind of a functional problem uh, for political and economic mobilization. Great, so, so this began uh, as dissertation research in Turkey. So tell us a little bit about the research you were doing. How, what, what made you uh, converge onto this uh, set of issues? Yeah, I had visited the field a number of times while I was developing this project. Um, and again, you know, a lot of eyes were on Turkey because of the rise of Erdogan and the AKP, the sense that an Islamic uh, political movement was very successful in a secular country, um, a secularist country, we could even call it. And so, you know, the, the word on the street, both by a lot of scholars in Turkey, but also outside of Turkey was that, um, the AKP's rise must be because there was some kind of a religious resurgence mm -hmm. uh, in Turkey. And so when I went to the field uh, the first time to develop this, I was studying at Boazici University and met with a lot of, of you know, social groups there that you know, had Islam as part of what they were doing. And I said, you know, so is, are you, you know, you guys, are you really religious? Have you always been religious? And they looked at me like I was, was crazy. They said, this isn't about, you know, you're talking about Allah and stuff that doesn't have to do with it. This is, uh, we just, we work really well together. We are, you know, we're a really cohesive group. They, they talked a lot about how they just felt like they, yeah, they were able to work together more effectively than any other kind of student organization they had seen on campus. So to me, that said something about an organizational advantage. And I wanted to understand what that was if it wasn't this kind of faith-based duty. That then sent you out into the literature trying to parse out uh, the existing explanations. Exactly. So I said, if it's not faith, uh, what else could it be? Um, and I wanted to understand exactly what faith could be doing here. So I think that that's probably where the deepest literature is. I'm thinking about, you know, Carrie Wickham's work in Egypt, uh, mobilizing Islam. Um, but, you know, the, the first generation of theories about, about kind of a mobilization advantage for any political group um, around Islam had to do with grievances. You know, the idea that uh, Islamic groups spoke to underlying grievances about against the, you know, secular nationalist regime. Um, so that was the first theory, then came uh, the faith-based theory. And most recently there, there are some great, new, there's great new work saying that Islamic groups have an informational advantage, either that when you reference Islam, you're signaling something about what, what you're going to do, what the group stands for, or because I'm um, thinking about Tariq Masood's work, because there's the uh, Islamic groups have great networks at which they can kind of reach potential supporters. Um, so I really wanted to see, was it any of these three theories um, and when I kind of came up empty in, in my, in my uh, analytic work, I wanted to try to say, well, what else could it be? It's a tremendously ambitious book. You decided not to stay in Turkey and to make this a genuinely global study. So tell us, what, what made you decide to go that route instead of digging in deeper into Turkey exclusively? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think Turkey, I always, I've always said it early on when I, when I started, when I left the study of the Arab world for, for studying Turkey, there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of questions about why I was doing that. That, that has, seems to have quieted down, but there's still a big question about where to situate Turkey, right? Do we think of it as part of Europe, as part of Southern Europe? Do we put it with the other Turkic republics in Central Asia? Do we think of it as part of the Middle East? Um, and so I definitely think of Turkey as part of the Middle East and, and that it speaks to a lot of phenomena within the Middle East, but recognizing also in this case, when you think about the Islamic advantage, that it's speaking much, much more broadly to what I call the Muslim world. So that's any country that has a, a Muslim plurality. So in the book, I you know, link what happens in Turkey to things happening in Indonesia, uh, happening in Pakistan, happening even in Nigeria and Mali. So really thinking about you know, Muslim countries stretched all over the world. Well, so let's talk about trust then. Uh, and as you point out in the book, uh, trust can mean a lot of different things and can be measured and, and can play out in a number of different ways. So tell us about how you thought about it, how you're defining it, and what work you see trust doing in overcoming these mobilizational problems. 
Yeah, I mean, so how I got to trust uh, was it kind of it, two ways and how I realized that trust was, was I think kind of at the middle of this um, was again, back to those early conversations I had with student organizers at Boazichi when they would describe, when I asked a little bit about why they thought their group was more successful, they talked a lot about how they really showed up for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, oh, then you, you must really have a long history of working together. And they said, no, that even when new members joined, there was sort of this, this sense that they could really rely on each other. Um, so they didn't always use the word trust. They didn't talk about, you know, Guven, Guven Mech, but they talked about kind of being able to rely on one another. Um, and my interest in Islamic politics has always kind of come from identity politics. Mm-hmm. And so the minute that they were talking about reliability, it really linked into social psychology theories about, about groups and about uh, social identity and how when the minute that you put people into categories, into social categories, they people automatically trust people within their same category. Um, and so at the, the point when I started my dissertation, not a lot of work had been done linking this group-based trust phenomenon to religious groups. It had mostly been about ethnic um, mm-hmm. and racial groups, but I didn't see why religious groups couldn't function in the same way. Um, and then, you know, you read, you know, huge literatures and from sociology, um, social psychology, political science and economics about how trust is so important to so many of the political, social and economic decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and so the minute that you realize how many of our, the decisions that we make as political and economic agents are trust dependent, uh, it becomes really important. This, this, this group-based trust can have a lot of, uh, of power especially, last point, where generalized trust is otherwise low. And Turkey is, you know, the 10th least trusting country in the entire world. When you ask people whether most people can be trusted in Turkey, about 10%, only 10% say that most people can be trusted. So you've got a trust problem that needs to be solved in some way. And I think in this case, Islam and group-based trust is the solution. And why do you think that Islam is better at uh, resolving these trust issues than ethnic or other types of identities? So I don't. This is, you know, I, I, I enjoyed writing the conclusion to this book because it gave me the opportunity to say all the things that I had not been able to address in the book. And one of them is why Islam? I don't think that Islam is better necessarily at, uh, at building group-based trust. In the case of a super, an Islamic supermajority country like Turkey, you can reach a wide audience, uh, potentially a wide audience. But I, as I say in the conclusion, I think that part of the reason that the Kurdish political movement has been so successful in Turkey, at least in the past couple of decades, I think may have to do with the same sort of process. That again, they're able to tap into group-based trust, but in this case, the group is different. It's around an ethnicity, Kurdish ethnicity, as opposed to a religion, Islam. So there's a couple of different things going on then. Uh, so the first is uh, you have, uh, and you use a lot of quantitative uh, analysis in this kind of cross-national comparison. And so one of the points that you that, that you make and you try and substantiate is that you have uh, kind of generally speaking, low levels of trust um, kind of across the Muslim world, which is kind of interesting. And, and, and you dig into that a little bit. So tell us about that phenomenon and how you ended up um, thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, I w- I'm not the first to investigate low levels of trust in the Muslim world. Other studies, though, have come up uh, without a definitive answer, mostly because the sample that they were looking at was substantially smaller than mine. So, uh, d- d- you know, the, the um, availability of cross-national survey uh, data is amazing and growing uh, by the year. And so I was able to build a much larger sample of countries. And once I did, the negative relationship between Muslim plurality status and and generalized trust was very clear. I think more interesting is that most existing or all of the existing theories of cross-national trust levels couldn't account for the trust deficit in the Muslim world. So this isn't just because of, of differences in the Muslim world that have to do with, you know, income inequality or, you know, natural resources. I was, I was, really careful before making coming to the conclusion that there is actually a trust deficit in many Muslim countries. It's, it's on average. Country. So it's, it's not everywhere. There are Muslim countries with healthy levels of trust, but 
on average, there is this trust deficit. Is it, so it's not just uh, kind of authoritarianism or repression or any of those uh, kind of non-religion specific explanations. No, and of course, don't forget that when I, at least when I was starting my dissertation research, Turkey was was a, a full democracy. So um, if anything, you know, the, the Turkey being the lowest trust country in the Muslim world, um, its level of trust was not in any way boosted by the fact that it, it wasn't an authoritarian country. So you you go through then using these um, these quantitative tests primarily uh, to kind of rule out the grievance uh, uh, faith and informational types of arguments or at least to cast question on them. So let's talk about that uh, a little bit. So why why isn't it about political grievances? Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, I think that you know the, the literature had kind of moved on from the grievance theory, but I thought it was worth uh, worth a, a second look. Um, so there were a couple of ways of thinking about evidence in favor of the grievance theory. Essentially, the grievance theory would say that the uh, lack of political participation generally in the Muslim world had to do with sort of apathy um, or, uh, you know, happiness. People just were not that interested in becoming politically mobilized, except if they were mobilized around Islam. Um, and what I found is that there was no evidence that uh, this is an apathetic part of the world, right? So you've got people have real grievances, um, but the most aggrieved are not the ones that are most likely to participate in political or economic movements. And so actually much like the rest of the world, those with the fewest resources um, and the most to lose are not, the, not necessarily the ones that are out there protesting. And so there, in both cases, on both sides, there just wasn't a lot of evidence in support of the grievance theory. Um, not higher grievances and the most aggrieved were not the ones who are participating. And then uh, you already talked about this a bit before, but um, you know, when you, on the question of uh, a faith and religiosity, um, you know, you go beyond your conversations at, uh, with the student groups um, and you go out and you test this kind of again, cross-nationally. Yeah, and I think this is where the the results I think are most surprising. So it's not only is it a null result, it's not a null result that, you know, more religious people are, are more politically active. It's actually that the most religious people in terms of a personal faith or a duty to God are the least politically active. Um, and that is true in Turkey, that is true elsewhere in the Muslim world. It's I, It follows a pattern um, that now some other scholars have, have reached. It's not even just Islam. It seems to be relatively consistent across different, across different faiths that a personal faith is not politicizing or galvanizing uh, people into political or economic participation. Now on the, the, inf the information uh, mechanism or informational explanations, here you mostly, you turn to Turkey to answer this very, very interesting, I think very clever um, look at what people think about Turkish political parties. Um, so tell us about this then. Yeah, so the focus here on Turkey, uh, as I say in the introduction to the book, whenever there is cross-national data available, I will offer you know, more than just a Turkey-based test. Um, but Turkey is an exceptional case in that the data are rich. And so we have a lot of data to test some of these theories. And so you know, the information theory has a number of different elements to it. And I tried my best to come up with a test of each of them. So one is that the Tur you know, Islamic groups, uh, when you say Islam, you have a clear sense of what to expect of those groups. I don't find that in the data. I find that uh, in the Turkish case that the AKP uh, overlaps in its policy space uh, with a lot of other parties. So it's not, doesn't stand for something unique. Uh, and it's not that uh, voters can pinpoint where that party is, right? So either objectively or subjectively, the party isn't, doesn't have a unique or especially clear position in the, in the policy space. Great. So then um, getting back to this question of trust, then, uh, you know, one of the things that you point out, which I think is um, just really fascinating, is uh, you, you find um, that there are actually higher levels of honesty and trustworthiness in Muslim countries, but lower levels of trust. And I find that very, that, that was kind of a complicated finding. It was, yeah. So, you know, trying to understand you know, if there's low trust in a country, you could say that the potential for collective action is therefore low because, you know, if, if the trust expectations are rational, 
people can't be trusted. Why would you ever go out and mobilize with, with your, you know, with your neighbors if they can't be trusted? And so I first wanted to understand whether there was even the potential for collective action, right, in, in the Muslim world and was surprised to find not just that levels of honesty weren't lower there, but they're actually significantly higher. So, you know, the point as I, you know, I, I joke in the book sometimes that even though uh, survey respondents in the Muslim world tend to say that people shouldn't be trusted. They really should. Their neighbors should be trusted uh, a, across a number of different metrics. Um, and so there's a real mismatch there. The potential for collective action is high. People should be trusted, but they are not. So but then one of the things which is then interesting is that you found that when you go out of Muslim majority countries, um, the same things don't apply. Like being Muslim doesn't seem to be the issue. Right. So then to try to understand, okay, so if it's not a rational, you know, if there's not a rational reason for this low level of trust, then what explains it? And there have been scholars out there that have said that Islam as a, as a faith is uh, foments distrust. Uh, so, you know, I can't say that it was something that I believed going into it, but I thought it was worth consideration. Uh, and so here I had to expand the analysis beyond just Muslim countries to look at also Muslims living outside the Muslim world um, and, and found that that isn't the case, that it's not that Islam as a faith or as maybe a culture is somehow uh, distrusting by nature, that Muslims living outside the Muslim world have healthy levels of trust, that immigrants uh, as they leave the Muslim world and go into the non-Muslim world update their trust expectations very quickly. Uh, so this is not a sticky cultural thing, nor uh, an element of faith that, that Muslims can't shake. I took both the fact that honesty is high and the fact that trust expectations can be updated mm -hmm. to say that the potential for collective action is there if trust expectations can be raised and, and improved, right? So all of the... Uh, all of the potential for collective action is there. People are, are honest and they are able to update their trust expectations. We just need, they need new information or a new reason to think that most people can be trusted around them. So then how do you establish that uh, trust is the reason why Islamist parties are therefore more able to mobilize? Well, I, I start off really developing the theory, building off of, like I said, theories about group-based trust uh, from social psychology, political science and economics. But then of course I offered explicit mm -hmm. tests of this theory um, from the Turkish case or from other parts of the Muslim world. And, and here I wanted to make sure that I was coming at it from a number of different angles to make sure that the, the findings were consistent throughout. So mm -hmm. I look at the effect of trust uh, or distrust as limiting political participation uh, or economic participation, and then how an Islamic identity can kind of substitute for that generalized trust to bolster participation. And I do that in three different settings. So there's an entire chapter about mass political participation. So taking part in kind of demonstrations on the street, things like that, showing again that there's a trust problem there that is solved uh, by an Islamic identity. I have a whole nother chapter looking at how there is a trust problem when it comes to voter coordination. So this is very much um, driven by the Turkish case, which has many, many more parties uh, than, it, than the Turkish uh, political system needs to. So people have to vote strategically, which means that they have to coordinate within their electoral districts on across different parties. So I show that there's a trust problem in that kind of strategic voting and that there's a coordination advantage uh, given an Islamic identity. And finally, there's a chapter that moves away from the political and in, into the economic, um, looking at the success of an Islamic-based business association called uh, Musiad in the Turkish case, showing here that the success of this Islamic-based business association is really built upon the trust advantage uh, across firms in, in the association. Yeah, I wanted to actually, that was actually my next question was that um, throughout uh, the book, you, you pair this up, the political and the economic, and I'm curious why you chose to do that and what extra value you found in moving from the political to the economic domain. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. So it's twofold. One is, is 
like most of the book, things were really driven by experiences that I had in the field when I developed this project. You know, I would say my first trip to Turkey, I knew about the AKP, um, but otherwise was a bit naive uh, about, about the rest of Turkey or, or what else was happening there. And I think I was really overwhelmed to realize that the phenomenon was not the AKP, that the AKP was part of a much broader phenomenon where Islamic-based groups were kind of rising or mobilizing on a number of in a number of different contexts. Um, and so in writing the book, I wanted to make sure that I did not paint a picture that this was just about Islamic politics. Mm -hmm. um, and the best way for me to do that really was thinking about the economic sphere. I think, you know, a lot was written about the Anatolian Tigers. So the learning about this Islamic-based business association would not be entirely new. Um, but I think the, the broader point, I guess the theoretical, the broader theoretical point of jumping from the political to the economic is really saying that politics is one form of collective action um, and that the Islamic advantage is not political or economic or social, but it's in any form of collective action where you need trust and where social trust is otherwise lacking. And so it, it kind of defined the scope of the argument and where it would apply so that I'm hoping scholars kind of pick up what I've done here and apply it in other, in other contexts and other settings. Well, that's a, per that's a perfect setup then for, I guess, the last question, which is now that this book is out and uh, people are able to read and digest your arguments, what do you think the, the, the significance of this is for the broader field? Where would you like to see the study of, of trust, of mobilization, of Islamist politics? Where should it go uh, from here? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I see this book as part of a a broader um, movement to reconsider what Islam is, what Islamists are, uh, and pushing away from the view of Islamic politics and, and Islamist actors as kind of fanatical or irrational actors, and really thinking about um, Islamic politics as like any form of politics, that it is, uh, it is a strategy, uh, both for the leaders of the movement and, and it's serving a purpose for its followers. And so I hope that not just the analytic approach of the book, but also putting Islamic politics within the framework of other political movements, of other collective action problems, really encourages us to dig deeper and to reconsider things that may appear to us from the outside to be sort of radical or fanatical. But if once we dig down to realize that, you know, kind of uh, nuts and bolts political science theories apply here because people are people, um, citizens are citizens, politicians are politicians. Uh, and we don't need to divide, you know, create those divisions whereby we decide that something is irrational and outside the scope of, of the political theories that we've developed elsewhere. That really we should be thinking about these political movements as, as everyday politics. Well, great. We've been speaking with Avatar Libney of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign about her new Cambridge University Press book, Trust and the Islamic Advantage. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was such a pleasure.